Welcome, listeners, to the Huddle Insights Podcast with Don Mills and David Campbell. I'm David Campbell, uh, and we're back with you this week to start a new series looking at the economic performance of each of the four provinces. We'll start today with Prince Edward Island because it has been, over the last decade, the most successful province in Atlantic Canada and one of the most successful across Canada. How are you today, Don? Great, David, and uh, it's a great uh, topic that we have uh, to start this series off, um, and we will feature uh, the former Premier of Prince Edward Island, Wade McLaughlin, who gave us a, a really great in-depth interview that helps explain to some extent the, the success of uh, Prince Edward Island, which will surprise many people in this region. But as you know, the growth of that province over the last decade in particular has uh, been really quite spectacular. And, and it's really driven to in a large extent by a very successful uh, growth strategy for their population, which has uh, grown faster than the country uh, at large over the last decade. And uh, so those two things seem to go together, as we've talked about in the past. And uh, Wade uh, goes into a little bit of detail about some of the important uh, things that have contributed to the success of Prince Edward Island. But we do want to start with the most successful uh, province uh, in this region as perhaps a bit of a model for the other three. Maybe we you know, can learn some lessons from the success of Prince Edward Island. Yeah, I appreciated his sense of history. He talked about... Regis Duffy 50 years ago. He talked about the how that was the origins of what would become the modern-day biosciences cluster uh, on the island. He talked about the role of the federal government in housing after the Second World War. So a good, uh, I think, uh, listeners will under, will appreciate his how he ties the sort of the last 50 or 60 years of history into what's going on uh, on Prince Edward Island right now. Yes, and... Uh you know, he, he talks about a couple of things that he was involved in, including the Atlantic uh, Immigration Pilot Program, which he uh, believes has been uh, really important to the island. And of course, has been, I think, important to the region. Uh, probably uh, should be expanded, uh, you know, because it lines, aligns people with jobs and uh, gets them into the workplace uh, right away. So it's a very, it's been a very successful model. And he talks about working with, uh, Minister McCallum, I believe, at the time, uh, as they uh, as they uh, you know figured out what that program would be, and um, uh, I think it's probably going to become permanent. It's not going to be <laughs> it's not going to be a pilot program any any longer because of its success. Yes, and in addition to his work on immigration, he had a lot to say about economic development, about the role of intermediary organizations such as the Biosciences or the Bio Alliance on PEI. But also a little bit of criticism about about uh, overlap and duplication and how these institutions might sort of become, uh, you know, part of the bureaucratic infrastructure and maybe need to be refreshed every every once in a while. So uh, we we had a wide ranging discussion with Wade. It was great. Uh, we probably could have gone an extra hour, but in the interest of our listeners, <laughs> we decided that we should stop near an hour with the premier and I I believe uh, the ex premier and I believe that. This was the first interview that Wade has conducted, at least an in-depth uh, interview of this kind, uh, since he uh, left politics. And so uh, we really appreciated the fact that he uh, gave us the opportunity to you know, understand kind of uh, what is going on in Prince Edward Island. One of the things that, I, that, that we asked him, of course, is whether or not, and this is, 
think about this, this is Atlantic Canada, whether the province is actually growing too quickly. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> any province in this region starting to wonder if it's growing too quickly? But in fact, uh, there is a little bit of a backlash going on in Prince Edward Island uh, in terms of uh, the housing market in particular. There's been so many people coming to the island. Um, uh, they're averaging 2% uh, growth. They've, they've grown 8% uh, in the population since the last census, um, that 2% a year, uh, frankly, it might be too fast uh, for the housing market to keep up. Possibly, but I would prefer innovative approach to housing. At the end of the day, I prefer the challenges of growth to the challenges of decline. And that's what I tell my, uh, my colleagues across Atlantic Canada. If you're getting a little bit of growth, a little bit of momentum, it's going to create some challenges around workforce, housing, cost environment, and so on. But I'd rather be dealing with those challenges and the challenges of decline. Where to put new schools is a lot more uh, a comfortable challenge than where to close schools. Yeah, that's 100% right. I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, it's always um, easier to deal with demand problems than some, you know, supply problems. And uh, now you know, they have a housing challenge over there. I, I would expect that uh, you know, the developers will step up. Now, there's a lot more uh, construction of multi-unit residential um, housing uh, on the island, which they're not really used to, as you know. Um, and I think they might actually be building a building that's eight stories high in Charlottetown, if you can imagine. So it's, uh, you know, it's a new world in, in, in PEI. And, of course, uh, just attitudinally, some people are, are, not against, are against that kind of growth, and we understand that, but it's really uh, for the benefit of the whole island, and I, and I followed the, you know, PEI for a long time, and for most of the last uh, couple of decades, their unemployment rate was, uh, you know, in the low teens, and uh, that's not success for anybody. And uh, now I I think they're going to soon lead the uh, the region in terms of their having the lowest un un unemployment rate. So that's a uh, you know, that creates its challenges, but it also creates uh, tremendous opportunities uh, for people, especially the private sector, in catering to the uh, demand side of, uh, of what's going on in, in, that, uh, in that province. Yeah, I think the PEI can sustain one and a half to two percent population growth, at least for the next 10 or 15 years as, as the boomers sort of work their way through retirement. Uh, and then things maybe start to stabilize a bit. But I think that, uh, you know, the island needs to look at that province-wide in terms of a growth rate if it wants to sustain 2% or more GDP growth every year. And I think they've proven over the last 10 years that they can do it. And housing is just another one of those challenges that they're going to have to address. Indeed. Uh, Wade actually brought up something that he has been uh, promoting for some time, uh, uh, the use of modular homes as a at least a stopgap kind of like after the Second World War, to provide uh, needed housing quickly and affordably to uh, especially new entrants to the market. And uh, that's, probably a, that's probably a pretty good option, frankly, if you look at the challenges that are going on in the, on the island right now. Absolutely. It's good quality housing. It's good affordable, attainable housing for newcomers coming to the island. So I think it's a, it needs to be part of a housing strategy. And the discussion we had with Wayne is applicable to the other three uh, Atlantic provinces as well. 
Yeah, in fact, you know, we probably should have a look at the housing market as one of our podcasts, uh, future podcasts, because I think it's going to be an issue. It's never been an issue here because we've always had lots of supply and not as much demand. Now it's reversed, especially in the larger urban areas. But uh, even if you look at what's going on in Prince Edward Island, I was looking at the population growth uh, statistics. Uh, PEI is the only province in Atlantic Canada where they've had population growth out of, outside their CMA, CA areas. Uh, which indicates that the whole province is benefiting from population growth, which probably means the housing demand is going up everywhere uh, on the island. And, um, and of course, that's, uh, that's not always the case in the rest of, uh, of the region. I did some work in New Brunswick here a few months ago, and I estimate in this province we're going to have to double the amount of housing units constructed if we are to get to a solid rate of population growth. Now, how do you do that? Do you double the size of your construction workforce? Oh, and by the way, 35% of your construction workforce is about to retire. So this is an additional challenge. And again, it is something that we absolutely have to address in this region. And I think modular homes are part of that, but the construction workforce and making sure we have enough people to actually construct these houses is, is another key part. Well, again, you know, we've been on this theme a little bit uh, already, but uh Population growth is really about ensuring an adequate labor supply to allow the economy not just to maintain its current pace, but to grow. And growth is good, at least that's my opinion, if you're going to have a, a good place to live for people and with lots of economic opportunities. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, going, to be, uh, it's going to be something that every province and every community, frankly, uh, will have to look at because... There's a lot of baby boomers, as we've talked about already, quarter million, I believe, that will be gone from the workforce in another 10 years. And um, that's a big number to replace. And uh, so we've got to find opportunities to attract more people to this region uh, to fill some of those uh, job opportunities. And, uh, you know, but PEI's uh, led the way for sure. And Wade McLaughlin has a lot to tell us about this. So without any further ado, here's our conversation with Wade McLaughlin. On our Insights podcast today, we talk with Wade McLaughlin, the former Premier of Prince Edward Island. Welcome to our podcast, uh, Wade. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hi, Don. Hi, David. Pleasure to be here. Uh, perhaps we can start by asking uh, what you've been doing since you uh, left the Premier's office, Wade. I say I'm living the good life. I've got a great family and community and health and have uh, a few irons in the fire in local private sector enterprises that uh, have been doing reasonably well. And mainly I'm uh, supporting my partner, Duncan, in a couple of very exciting enterprises. One is a, a new business venture supporting uh, newcomers and growing communities faster. Uh, and I'm, in fact, speaking with you from the, the studio of New Welcome. And uh, another is a, a new feature film that Duncan's involved in producing that... Uh, that goes by the name A Small Fortune. It's located in PEI, and uh, it could be, uh, may well be a sensation that you'll be hearing about soon. That's really interesting. Uh, prior to becoming a leader of the Liberal Party and the Premier of PEI, you were the president of the University of Prince Edward Island. I can't recall another academic becoming a Premier in Canada. It's probably happened, but I, I, I don't recall any. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey that led you into politics? Sure, Don. And I have to add, mention, of course, Angus L. MacDonald, who was a law professor before uh, 
getting a uh, premier of uh, Nova Scotia, but he did it younger. Uh, in any case, uh, my uh, academic field in law was uh, constitutional administrative law. Um, I was involved in various ventures that, in effect, were working with government to grow the economy while I was president of UPEI. Um, I was involved in various regional and uh, national uh, initiatives. And over that time, uh, notably while I was at UPEI, I uh, became, uh, I might say preoccupied, but in any event, I identified as a priority concern uh, the combination of the demographic and economic gap uh, that exists between Atlantic Canada uh, and the rest of the country. And it was eventually that, together with the work that I did over a few years, writing the political biography of PEI's longer-serving Premier Alex Campbell, uh, that, uh, that kind of preceded and in many ways, I would say, led me into politics. Actually, it was Campbell, wasn't it, that uh, led to the formation of UPEI? Is that correct? Yes, indeed. That was a big uh, that was a big development. UPEI and uh, Holland College; uh, those were uh, visionary decisions and brave politically at the time. Turns out uh, that uh, once he did it, everyone said, "Well, finally, someone did something." Uh, and uh, those two institutions indeed have laid an important part of the foundation for what is the continuing success of, of Prince Edward Island. Now, you were Premier from uh, 2015 to 2019. Uh, during that period, the island was in the process of some fairly significant changes. Uh, while you were Premier, what were the key policies that your government pursued to improve the prosperity uh, of islanders? So, first, of course, the initiatives to improve the prosperity were in conjunction with or together with uh, other initiatives in uh, social areas or the environment. Uh, but in the case of uh, our work uh, to advance uh, a more prosperous Prince Edward Island, we, I would say there were three uh, uh, in buckets. One is the whole question of population and workforce. Uh, two would be strategic infrastructure. And third, the, the suite of programs that governments pursue to support business growth, and in particular to support entrepreneurs, and those would include uh, in particular programs in lending and investment or in trade. Uh, so the, if I may expand on the uh, population and workforce, because really uh, those were the first priorities or concerns that probably got me into this in the first place. Um, in the first year of our mandate, we introduced a population action plan that set out three pathways, you might say, to recruit, uh, to retain, uh, and to repatriate. And over that uh, time, uh, Prince Ed, over the period 2015 to 19, the end of 19, uh, Prince Edward Island's uh, population uh, led that of other provinces in the country and was approximately double the growth that uh, Canada as a whole had during that time. Happily, the economy grew even faster. Um, over that same period, PEI's economy expanded by just under 15%, uh, which again would be about double uh, what uh, was experienced by Canada as a whole. Quite unusual uh, for, for Prince Edward Island to be uh, growing uh, at that pace and uh, 
uh, we were very happy, of course, to, to have those uh, results because that enabled government to do uh, a lot of other things in, in, in other program areas. So as you indicated, Prince Edward Island has led the country in both economic growth and population growth over much of the last decade. What is the relationship between population growth and economic growth? I'd say, David and Don, it's directly proportional. Um, you can't grow the economy uh, without uh, a workforce. And if, if, if you go back to the uh, position of Atlantic Canada historically uh, in this area, if you take the 2016 census, um, as of 2016, 22% of the Canadian population was born uh, outside of the country. Uh, in the case of Atlantic Canada, if you take in descending order, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland and Labrador, um, our comparative standing in that sense would be about one quarter uh, that of the country. Uh, that's to say somewhere around 5%. Uh, that's, not a, that's not a recipe for, for long-term success. Uh, particularly when you've got a, an aging uh, population and when you can see the demographics of your workforce uh, advancing uh, year by year, which they will inevitably do. Uh, so if, if our region, and in our case in particular of Prince Edward Island, if we're not renewing and rejuvenating and upskilling uh, our workforce, and if we're not uh, having additional entrepreneurial initiative and partnerships uh, come in uh, to the province, uh, it's pretty hard to keep up. Uh, one of the things that's well known about uh, immigration is that um, entrepreneurs bring links in terms of uh, trade, both import and export. And in fact, Prince Edward Island has seen uh, the benefit of that. And uh, there's also a, a, a wide body of uh, research that at about year six, uh, after people arrive in a new country, these are people who've come halfway around the world and taken all kinds of risks and bring new insights and experience, uh, uh, that about that six-year mark, uh, there are new partnerships and ventures and uh, opportunities uh, that get uh, identified, you might say, a, a second wave of innovation. But I guess I'm, I'm, I think... I wanted to dig in a little bit on the immigration question, because if you go back to a decade ago or a decade and a half ago, the four Atlantic provinces all kind of looked the same demographically. So what, why was the island different? Like what, what was different about the fact that you saw this need for immigration before the other three and in fact had, a, had an immigration rate over three times the rate in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia for a sustained period, almost for an entire decade. So what, what did, did you guys see something that the rest of us didn't? Well, you didn't have to look very far, really, uh, David. If, uh, if you looked across the country at what Manitoba and Saskatchewan had started doing about a decade earlier uh, than Prince Edward Island did, and then in turn that it became more common across Atlantic Canada, um, it was to use, and use for the purpose that it was developed, what was called the Provincial Nominee Program. The background in Canada, really as of, call it 2000, was that about 
95% or upwards of 95% of uh, immigrants were in uh, four provinces, uh, Ontario, BC, uh, Quebec and Alberta in that order. And more than two thirds of them were, you might as well say, in Toronto and Vancouver. Um, so that really wasn't uh, uh, something that was going to work out very well for Canada in, in the long run. That's why the provincial nominee program was developed and uh, my predecessor governments to when I was Premier and PEI, the Bins and Giz government, uh, used uh, that program in particular to uh, recruit and uh, to have uh, entrepreneurs, uh, investor entrepreneurs, uh, come to Prince Edward Island. And uh, in, in the process, um, there were opportunities to learn from uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan. And in fact, the this is something that has gotten carried forward uh, with a much greater emphasis now uh, on uh, skilled workers or on the skilled uh, category uh, of immigrants. With In Prince Edward Island today, um, 80% or upwards of 80% uh, of new immigrants are coming in skilled situations to take a job. I know that you were personally involved in working with the federal government to implement the Atlantic immigration pilot uh, program, Wade, which has turned out to be uh, very successful in our region, I think, by almost all accounts. Uh, how did that program come about in the first place? In uh, Well, we had an election uh, nationally in Canada in late October or early November of uh, 2015. Uh, the new Minister of Immigration, uh, Immigration, Refugees, Refugees and Citizenship, John McCollum, in early December, I did my uh, round of visits to the new cabinet ministers, something that's important for premiers to do. Um, on my visit with uh, John McCollum, and I'd known him some in a previous life, uh, one of the things I said to him was um, the, that the department IRC, we call it the Department of Immigration, uh, is, uh, is run the way you'd run a library if you didn't want to let the books out. Uh, and um, he he laughed. He said, "I'm beginning to see that." And he said, "I hope you don't mind if I if I use that uh, analogy." Uh, we also spoke um, on that uh, visit. In fact, I I would walk around on these meetings with cabinet ministers and carry a two page uh, kind of a deck of uh, charts and leave behind information. Uh, one of the uh, charts on that two-pager that uh, I discussed with John McCollum that day uh, was what uh, you'd know well, David, as an economist, is the dependency ratio of uh, the relationship of the uh, working age population to uh, those who are younger and those who are um, beyond working uh, age. And uh, in the case of Prince Edward Islands at that time, uh, it looked pretty scary uh, out to uh, 2065. Uh, and anyway, John laughed and he said, uh, first time I've seen a premier walking around with the dependency ratio, uh, but he really took it to heart. And then in the uh, next summer, uh, he and his wife, Nancy, came on a personal vacation to Prince Edward Island. Um, one of their main reasons to come was to visit with their friends, Lawrence and Francis McCauley. And there's always a personal story behind uh, some of these big public policy uh, developments. Um, so John and Nancy came to lunch at our place and he asked, I had told him 
when we met in December of 2015 about Royal Star Fisheries and Don, I know you've referred to this and it's a great story of uh, very successful uh, fish processing and a fishing community and uh, export operation that uh, uh, feeds uh, a whole region and indeed there's a spillover benefits uh, throughout uh, Prince Edward Island. Um, but uh, if, if you look at the workforce, the core workforce in the, in the fish plant there at Royal Star, um, there's no question that the plant would not be operating were it not for uh, immigrant workers. A uh, very large number uh, who've come uh, from the Philippines over a period now of, I'm going to say 15 years, and uh, great people, and they're happy there, And uh, uh, but as was the, uh, the, given the pathways that were open to um, immigrant plant workers uh, in, at that time, as recently as 2015, uh, they were in a very tenuous uh, situation, especially with their families back in the Philippines. And if, for example, if they had to go back, if someone was sick, a child, a parent, uh, they had to start all over again. They might not even be able to return. Uh, so this was the, the, so John, back on John McCollum, he asked if I would invite uh, some of those workers to the lunch. And Francis Morrissey, who is the manager of that operation and a very effective leader and business and community leader um, came with four of the workers and there wasn't the trace of a grievance it was simply storytelling and storytelling is so important uh, in this world but John and Nancy who herself uh, uh, started out originally I believe in Singapore um, uh, took this all to heart and by a year later uh, in July of 2017 uh, the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program had been put together uh, and uh, there were a number of uh, pathways that, uh, and aspects to uh, that pilot that has made life a lot more secure uh, for, for those workers and for many others. Uh, they can bring their families, uh, they can uh, come and go and they've got a, what is now the fastest pathway in Canada to permanent residency and uh, the, 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 it has been successful there and successful uh, throughout our region. One of the other things that became central, and I do believe the, the example of Royal Star helped to inform uh, the AIP, the Atlantic Immigration Pilot in that sense, is the integral role of employers uh, in speaking up, putting their hand up, uh, providing not just jobs, but really becoming uh, an effective part of the settlement process uh, for people who, who come through the Atlantic Immigration Pilot. Well, you know, in our discussion with Jim Irving, he referenced that program and the, and the importance of that program to his uh, companies. And uh, I guess the question is, uh, you know, it, it, it's a pilot program in name now still. Uh, the number of people that were allowed to come in under that program is too limited, in my view. Uh, how should that program uh, evolve, Wade? Well, Don, I think the, the first thing about that program is, is to recognize its uh, strengths. And in the case of Prince Edward Island, it was announced, it was announced, in fact, here in uh, PEI at Magell at Lawrence Macaulay's Barn uh, that uh, July of 2017. And within less than a year, uh, 250 PEI employers put their hand up and stepped forward to say, uh, we want to be part of this. Uh, we've got jobs and here's 
how we'll have some skin in the game. So to my mind, that that is the great advantage in terms of uh, settlement and uh, retention, but ultimately of building strong communities. Uh, if, uh, if I had one thing to uh, recommend to make it work even more smoothly, um, and Jim Irving referred to this in, in his interview with you, it's the uh, continuing uh, emphasis that, um, that Immigration Canada or IRC uh, puts on language uh, requirements. I think generally uh, we know that people who come new to Canada from generally quite challenging and risky situations around the world, uh, the number one thing they want to do is provide for their family. And the faster uh, we can enable people to be in that situation, I have no concern whatsoever uh, that the that, that they'll learn uh, the local language. Uh, but, but what we've seen in a number of the communities in Prince Edward Island is that uh, people come in, they're good savers, uh, not long before they're looking around for real estate. Uh, and uh, you know, that's, that's perhaps another piece of the puzzle that uh, we need to talk about in the course of this uh, interview. Uh, but the one that I do think has been um, overemphasized and perhaps has been steered on the wrong pathway in terms of having people sitting in classrooms uh, for newcomers is uh, uh, the mastering the local language. And related to that, uh, I think we've got a long, not a long way to go, but I believe now we've got some, some capabilities for this and that's to provide them with more uh, immediate information about what's going on here in their new community, in the language that they already know. So, Wade, immigration has obviously been a key part of the, the PEI growth story, but there's more to it. When you look at the international export numbers, PEI has led the country in the growth of international exports. There are sectors, the food economy, the biosciences sector. Uh, um, it's fallen on a little bit on hard times lately, but even the aerospace sector on the island has, has thrived. So what has been the basis for economic growth on the island in the last decade or so? Obviously, the university has also played a key role there. Yes, David. Well, you've named a number of the key pieces here. And I would say the, the, the success of Prince Edward Island is that we've built I'll say, on our assets and on our experience. So take the bioscience. Um, if, if it weren't for one person, Regis Duffy, so now we're back to John Bragg's point about entrepreneurs. Uh, if it weren't for Regis Duffy, um, I don't believe Prince Edward Island would have much of a bioscience sector uh, today. He started 50 years ago uh, as a chemistry professor looking for some, to find summer jobs for his students to mix a few kilos of dye. Um, that evolved over that period of time into uh, what became both the DCL and BioVectra. DCL is now Sekisui, and between the two of them, they would employ close to 700 people in Prince Edward Island. Um, that reference account, let me call it, allowed us to uh, make the case for the proof or to show the evidence that Prince Edward Island could succeed in this area. Uh, David, you mentioned the university. I would say 
without the Atlantic Veterinary College, um, we likely would not have gotten as far as we have in bioscience, uh, animal health, and food is a big part of both the research story and the um, and the commercial story uh, that comprises the bioscience in PEI, which is now uh, roughly 60 companies and a couple of thousand uh, jobs. Uh, if, if you move that out to uh, other sectors, um, you mentioned aerospace, and uh, aerospace now has a cousin in marine technologies um, that started out uh, with a, an airbase that was going idle uh, at Slemon Park or near Summerside. Uh, the point that I would take from those two examples and could take from others, generally the, the, the question of food and how uh, people have, how people and entrepreneurs and companies in PEI have found new ways to get food to market. It, it's all what I would call an asset-based uh, approach. Uh, and, and to me, that's the key. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that's what you will find as you look at other uh, examples in, in, in the other provinces. Um, there's one other sector that had quite remarkable uh, growth over uh, the period that I know best from 2015 to 2019, a period when we created, or when the PEI economy created, I should say, 8,500 new full-time jobs, and that's manufacturing. Uh, if you look at what Statistics Canada counts as goods production, uh, Prince Edward Island had growth in that 2015 to 19 period of 27%, which is really breathtaking in the, in, in the world of, of any kind of economic uh, change. Um, and that's a combination of what some people call metal banging, people who are good uh, with metal working skills, with technologies, with uh, taking to the world uh, solutions to problems that we've had to work out the hard way over a few generations uh, here in Prince Edward Island. Um, and uh, the great majority of the, uh, uh, of the volume that those companies are doing uh, is export-based. Uh, but this has really been a, a, a great success story over, over that same period that I'm talking about. You have to drop down to British Columbia with something like about 14% growth in goods production, goods producing industries in that time. And from there, it's all the way down uh, the ranks. And uh, Prince Edward Island uh, may not be the place that people would say um, was going to show the rest of the country that manufacturing uh, was still in fashion. But I'll tell you a story, uh, and it's, it's about how you have to let uh, the good businesses and the good entrepreneurs do what they think is, needs to be done. We went on a, a trade mission that I led to uh, China, um, maybe it was 2017, as I recall, and I was pleased to see that uh, one of our uh, good entrepreneurs with a, a business in metal banging, I'll call it, uh, fabrication, uh, with a workforce of upwards of 100, came along on that mission. And sometimes people would come looking for supply chains. Sometimes they'd come uh, looking for sales. Uh, 
a few days after we had arrived in China, uh, I said I haven't that I hadn't I made the comment that I hadn't seen uh, this particular entrepreneur, and the answer was, "Oh, he went to Vietnam looking for metal workers and welders." And I said, "Great, uh, if that's if that's what he needs, uh, and that's what's going to work in his business and in his community, uh, then that's really how uh, you, you have to let an economy grow." I'm still probing a bit for the secret sauce, Wade, because there were other base closures across Atlantic Canada around the same time as Summerside, and yet the cluster in Slimmon Park generated far more economic value than the closures we saw in the rest of Atlantic Canada, even though the money that was provided by the federal government was proportional. So there's something going on. I think it had something to do with attracting some big companies like Honeywell at the time and, and others, but something's, there's something in the water over there and Don and I aren't going to let you leave until you tell us what's in the water. Um, but let's can talk I a try, little bit about... Can I, David, let me Please. jump in on two, two, two points on that because I, sure. I don't know if it's, if, it's, if it's a secret, but one might be geographic. Prince Edward Island works as a single metropolis, I say, or as a single region, that's to say if... Uh, Standard Aero or Honeywell is looking for workers and things have slowed down uh, at a similar operation in the Montague area. You know, people can travel, might be an hour's drive, but they do uh, to uh, take up the opportunity. So the a key to any successful economy is if, uh, you know, there's something to do if uh, whatever you're currently doing, uh, you know, turns down. And it, it in that case... Um, Geography uh, is is a benefit. The second is, um, and Simon Park is a great example of it. Um, there is a kind of scrappiness, uh, I'll call it, and I think it's scrappiness uh, more than resilience um, that uh, people share, or people that are growing the economy share uh, in Prince Edward Island. And I'll tell you uh, one that I was involved in directly, but the people that led the rebirth of uh, Slemon Park uh, were ready to fight and did. Um, the, when the Atlantic uh, Investment Partnership was launched in uh, 2000 by the Kretchen government, um, there was a whole stream for science-based investments largely through the National Research Council. And when we got a look at that, and it was probably our own fault for not being out ahead in the first place, um, it looked like Prince Edward Island was going to get a couple of computers over in the corner so we could find out what was going on in Halifax and Moncton. Um, and uh, we, we weren't all that crazy about uh, that kind of distribution of things. And if we didn't, we never ever said we're after our fair share. We said, we're going to show you that we can do this. Not only that, but we can show you a success story that you're not going to have without us. And that that sort of scrappiness, uh, I think, is, 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 is well de demonstrated in what came out of the effort that well, extended from about 2000 to 2003, uh, sometimes dealing with uh, Ottawa, sometimes pulling together uh, collaborations in the region. And we were helped uh, by business leaders uh, from uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick uh, to make this possible, but it wouldn't have happened if we hadn't set out to put up a fight. 
Speaking of scrappy, what do you think of organizations such as the PEI Bio Alliance as kind of a catalyst to bring all the players together to try and do things to incubate new entrepreneurship? Do you see that organizations such as that are important if we want to grow specific clusters, particularly in places like Atlantic Canada? You have to be strategic, uh, David. And uh, I was in on the uh, in, in on the birthing of the Bio Alliance at the time. Uh, the concept was that there needed to be a collaborative table um, to uh, identify uh, opportunities together, to identify gaps, uh, to uh, build uh, relationships, and that's a big part of it. Is uh, in a, in a sector that now has 60 companies uh, for the businesses and the workers uh, to know each other. In fact, there have been some changes over the past 36 months where people have moved from one company uh, to, to another. Uh, so that, that's, that's been important, David. Uh, but let me say that, and this is not directly a comment about the Bio Alliance, but I've, um, I've seen Don's work recently on uh, economic development. Um, um, it, it wouldn't hurt in uh, creating uh, uh, agencies uh, if we had them, uh, and this is not about the BioAlliance, uh, but generally on, on economic development. Um, we have had a, a, a tendency, I'll say, in the region uh, to make those permanent or to turn them into uh, bureaucracies where uh, people don't move around enough um, and uh, uh, I suggested in a note to Don after his piece about the economic development agencies that uh, uh, it, one particular uh, initiative might be to have uh, renewable term contracts with performance measures for, for people who are in economic development. Well, there's, there's a concept. <laughs> I think that that's exactly right. That's exactly what we need to... Uh, have a look at economic development activities, obviously. Uh, I, I believe that we have way too many players doing too many of the same things without any consequences of their, of their, of their performance. So, you know, there are good examples of uh, economic development agencies, obviously, that are doing good work, but they all start with a good strategic plan with um, measurable outcomes. Those are the ones that are the most effective. Um, there's a bunch of other things that we could ask about sectors, but I think we've covered that pretty well. And given our time, I'd like to move to another area that I, I, I was tweeting recently about the success of PEI, you know, the population growth, the economic growth. And I was taken by surprise by a number of people who uh, responded to me in, in, in a bit of a negative way from PEI, who lived on PEI and clearly didn't see uh, the benefit to them. And it really had to do... Uh, with the rapidly uh, increasing uh, problem of both the availability and affordability of housing on the island. And, and it's clear that demand has outpaced supply. And uh, it's happening in other communities as well. It's happening in Halifax and it's happening in, uh, in Moncton uh, for sure. I think Charlottetown is the most uh, most in need of housing at the moment. But uh this is an this is a, an opportunity. It's an economic opportunity, obviously. But what do you think can be done to address this particular and increasing uh, serious problem in PEI? 
So it's a real issue, uh, Don and David, and it's, it's, it's an issue everywhere. It's an issue right now, the world over, and uh, the evidence as we uh, get to the later stages of the pandemic is, is, is more and more in front of us uh, in terms of the cost and the shortage of supply of uh, housing. And uh, we've known for decades, generations, that uh, you know, without housing, it's, it's hard to grow. Um, and indeed, both Jim Irving and John Bragg spoke about this in their uh, interviews with you. I studied the um, premiership of Alex Campbell and, and wrote the, his political biography, uh, and in particular studied the various programs and investments of the period of the Comprehensive Development Plan. Um, and a lot of people were surprised when I uh, made the observation that it was the housing programs uh, uh, during the Campbell years and during a time when the federal government was very active in the sector uh, that had the most sustainable impact in terms of uh, people's lives, in terms of economic well-being, um, and uh, in terms of people getting established uh, with uh, what will be the most important part of their net worth. Uh, and anyone, uh, anyone who's observing this uh, would say that this is a problem nationally in Canada uh, today. Um, and uh, the thing about the housing market uh, is that uh, addressing supply is, uh, is a very long-term thing, uh, whereas on the demand side, you can produce spikes in, in less than a month. Uh, and it, that's exactly how, the, how it behaves, but it behaves to the detriment uh, of people who are in vulnerable economic situations, that's your affordability point, uh, and it uh, affects people who are trying to get started out. And to, to my mind, it, it's, it, a lot of what is said about housing um, doesn't uh, say enough about the importance, uh, in a particular when you're trying to grow an economy and a workforce, uh, for younger people uh, to get their first house. And uh, I always bring out the example of the Victory Housing Initiative and the Veterans Land Act programs and others that got people established uh, toward the end and then in the short period after uh, the Second World War. Uh, those lasted a long time. So in any case, coming forward into uh, the Prince Edward Island situation today, I saw a publication from BMO earlier this week that uh, showed that Prince Edward Island actually had the least, the least in the range of 30%, um, March to March uh, change uh, of the 10 provinces. This, this is right now a very serious uh, challenge uh, for, for Canada as a whole. Uh, and, it's not, and it's, if anything, exacerbated by the uh, resources that people have put into home improvements and uh, expanding uh, their remote offices and so on that uh, we're, we're now uh, dealing with uh, as we come through and out of uh, the pandemic. Uh, so I don't think anything short of a, uh, a national, or if, 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 if failing a national initiative, then a regional one, to actually repeat something close to what was done with those do dobies and strawberry boxes and victory homes at the end of World War II, uh, is going to be enough, especially for people who are trying to get started. And I think we could do that uh, right here uh, in Atlantic Canada and do it to our benefit.
Uh, you mentioned that uh, the PEI had grown at twice, twice the rate of, the, of Canada over the last couple of years, which is about 2% uh, compared to 1% nationally. Uh, recent polling has indicated that there's a growing minority of islanders who are beginning to feel that the number of immigrants needed needed to be redu- need to be reduced. Uh, and you know, uh, I've been advocating that uh, we should be targeting one percent growth in our populations in Atlantic Canada as a reasonable number to be able to absorb them into the economy without causing the sort of things that are happening now with uh, the you know the greater than national growth that PEI is having. Now, I wondered if, if you thought that uh, there, there should be uh, maybe a ratchet back the, the population growth uh, to maybe more closer to the national average. So let me give you a two, three-part answer to that, Don. First, uh, Prince Edward Island, uh, to go back to 1960, had 50% of the uh, per capita national income. We're now up to 80, but if we're ever going to close the gap, uh, we, we need to do more than whatever the national norm uh, is. And, uh, and we've said that on many occasions. And, and I think that's true uh, for Atlantic Canada as a whole. If we're going to catch up, we have to get ahead. Uh, the, uh, the most recent year, uh, PEI's population growth is 0.8%. But let me come to the question of whatever that opinion is. Um, I think whoever is asking that question uh, and if, if people are saying, yes, well, we think that, you know, there are too many or there should be fewer people coming to Prince Edward Island, there should be a follow-up question to say, can we send you some information about opportunities in truck driving or in senior care or in fish plants or in food service uh, or, or to be a doctor or a nurse? We have existential challenges in providing the things that we already need uh, and that Prince Edward Islanders and Atlantic Canadians expect right across the board. So the people who have an opinion, maybe they're interrupting their supper or maybe they something's not suiting them that day or they've got a kind of a parlor game type opinion or they're looking at social media, which is full of all kinds of garbage on this stuff, should be asked, well, what are you going to do about it? And we, whatever I call the existential challenge today, is going to be worse in five years and ten years as we try to keep up with what we already expect as our standard of living. And I think Prince Edward Islanders and Atlantic Canadians need to understand that. In the main, they do. Those employers who stepped forward with the Atlantic Immigration Program, the uh, municipalities right across the board in all parts of Prince Edward Island stepped up, put their hand up, took initiatives, Uh, There's currently an initiative among the Chambers of Commerce called the Partnership for Growth. I don't think there's any doubt in Prince Edward Island that people who are involved in uh, leadership or people who are acting as part of the community and when people, and I'm talking about non-governmental organizations, I'm talking about opinion in terms of what people recognize we need to do, one of, the, one of the things that we don't have as an option is to uh, somehow turn off the tap on either population or immigration. I think it's actually been quite remarkable. I, I've had this debate with people about the term come from away. 
And I can't figure out if that's an island term or a Cape Breton term, but that term did originate somewhere in Atlanta, Canada, this idea of people that come from away. And yet the island has attracted so many immigrants in the last decade and plus. But the retention rate's only been a little under 50%. Now, the data we have is lagged because you're talking about people that landed here, say, in 2013 or 2014 or whatever. But I wanted to get your thoughts on retention of newcomers. Uh, Is it getting better? Are you seeing that it's getting better? And what can we do? You're never going to keep 100%. We don't keep 100% of our own young people. So it's a little bit hard to assume we're going to keep 100% of newcomers. But what are your thoughts around how we keep or, or a higher level of retention of newcomers into the region? Two things first, David, about the, the premise, and, and you built the, one of them into your question. Um, those uh, findings are from 2018 tax data, which is the most recent that we've got available for that purpose, uh, and 2013 immigration intake. So that's about an eight-year lag by today. Uh, the, uh, during that eight years, uh, we have shifted, in the case of Prince Edward Island, from predominantly uh, investor uh, immigrant uh, intake to overwhelmingly uh, skills-based uh, people who are coming for a particular job and, uh, in, and in fact, have to have a job offer uh, to, to arrive. Um, the second thing, and I don't often claim that it's a disadvantage to be small uh, in the case of Prince Edward Island, but those retention data um, automatically discriminate against uh, a smaller province or a province that's close to a border. If someone moves from Sackville to Amherst, they're considered to be a, a kind of a retention failure, whereas if they move from Ottawa to Timmins or from Toronto to Kitchener, um, they're still Ontarians. Um, so we have, to, we have to kind of not take those findings and internalize them or say in the first part, oh, well, that proves we're a failure. Um, the, but that said, uh, we should, in all of our uh, workforce programs and in our population and in our immigration pathways, be always working for people to come and do well and stay and contribute economically in other ways to the overall welfare uh, of our province. Now, we're still in a country where we have mobility rights and we're still in a country where uh, people, um, people will make their choices or you know, they've, uh, people come in family units and so on. Uh, so you know, that kind of comes with the territory. Uh, but the more we can do to build strong communities, uh, for people to be part of uh, sports communities, uh, faith communities, uh, uh, and there's more and more of this happening happening as the numbers grow. And let me give you an example. One of the uh, initiatives uh, from uh, mainly the South Asian community here in Prince Edward Island, but also people from the Caribbean and Africa, was to build a cricket patch and uh, our cricket ground. And uh, people come from New Brunswick and Nova Scotia regularly uh, to, to play cricket together. And uh, it, it was done entirely as their initiative. Uh, I'll give you another example. It's in the same community in Stratford, which really stepped out first in PEI to build this as more than uh, economic growth. Uh, and uh, 
the town of Stratford regularly uh, got people together, uh, whatever their ethnic background or whatever their immigration status, uh, through food. Uh, and, and I think we have to keep finding ways to make life real. Uh, back to the Royal Star example, the Tignish School uh, has now become one of the real contenders in uh, the, the school soccer uh, competition. Uh, and uh, it, it, it hasn't hurt that uh, some of those youngsters who learned to play soccer in the Philippines uh, are on those teams. So that's, that's how life evolves, and that's why we expect to see and are seeing uh, changes in terms of retention uh, data for, for Prince Edward Island. Uh, Wade, when you, I think it was when you were the president of UPI, you, uh, you were the conference, uh, you did a conference on rural development in Georgetown. I forget what the right term was, the Georgetown Conference, I guess it was. And uh, you, you made the mistake, I guess, of asking me to come to speak at that conference. And <laughs> I remember saying that the best way to save rural communities is have more successful nearby urban communities. <laughs> and uh, that created a bit of a buzz at the conference. But um, uh, one of the things that I noticed in looking at the most recent population data for PEI is there's growth all over the island. There, there's very few communities that I could identify that, that were losing population. And even in Georgetown, by the way, I was astounded that they're up like 40% from, when, from that conference time. And I'm pretty sure that most of those people are, are probably commuting to Charlottetown to take advantage of opportunities there. But uh, I just wanted to uh, to ask you, about, you know, I, you mentioned the fact that, you know, PEI is kind of one market and people will travel all over the place, you know, for jobs and, and because of the size, uh, the size opportunity that exists there. But um, do you have any comment about uh, maybe looking back at that Georgetown conference and seeing where the where the province has gone since then? Well, Don, it really did plant the seeds for some of what has happened since, as well as the, I might say, the scrappiness, and you may have encountered some of that uh, in your presentation on the uh, urban centers or hubs uh, at, at the conference. But, but let me put it this way. Um, since that time, we call the conference, by the way, Rural Reimagined, uh, the... Um, and, and really the founder of it was Paul McNeil, who was the editor of the Eastern Graphic and right. the West Prince paper, um, but the, or the publisher. The, um, in Georgetown itself, there are today two excellent employers, or near Georgetown, who weren't there uh, in 2013, or weren't there on the same scale. One actually is located on a, what was an abandoned timber yard. Uh, right uh, adjacent to the town at, uh, at the, in, in, since 2007, uh, and it now has upwards of 100 employees uh, shipping uh, very sophisticated uh, processing equipment, including uh, the equipment that is uh, going into the uh, um, Beyond Meat uh, plant that Maple Leaf Foods is building in Indiana. Um, uh, another of those companies is... Uh, in the marine technologies uh, sector uh, with a high level partnership with, uh, the, uh, with, a, with a subset of uh, Volkswagen, the Mann uh, diesel group. Um, and it's really jobs, 850 jobs in uh, four years. Uh, those have shown up in Surrey, in Tignish, in Kensington, in Georgetown, now part of Three Rivers. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, in, in, in the rural areas and, and in the rural, urban areas 
as well. And, and, and I do think that, that that's really the key is uh, rather than to have people in a, in a sort of an abstract conversation about whether it's going to be rural or urban, uh, to work together with uh, the businesses and the entrepreneurs to find what I call the intersecting opportunities. And, and I mentioned earlier, there's currently an initiative started by the Joint Chambers of Commerce here on PEI, and I think it's a model that uh, could very well be adopted elsewhere in the other provinces, uh, called uh, Partnership for Growth. Uh, and growth is right there at the heart of it, as is partnership. And if, if we can focus on where those opportunities are and where we need uh, even greater population and workforce to keep up with the opportunities, most of the other issues are going to be, they're going to fade away. Uh, you probably listened to the mo uh, recent conversation we had with John Bragg, who's a big um, proponent of uh, rural economic development. He talked in, in our podcast about the need for government loans to support rural economic development. I wonder what your opinion is of the role of government in providing loans for rural development. And Don, you'll recall that John was one of the co-chairs of that 2013 uh, Georgetown uh, conference and yes, uh, spoke was, yeah. uh, there. And, Small uh, world. <laughs> and uh, so this is this is not new to this is not new to to John. And and I would say the point about lending is one that you would extend generally to Atlantic Canada. We're, we're pretty much as a region, maybe a few uh, exceptions, treated uh, a few sectors and, 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 and uh, areas that are, that are treated as an exception, but otherwise uh, we're treated as rural uh, and risky. Uh, and that, that was really the point. The, the lending uh, institutions, the national lending institutions, uh, Somebody's up on the whatever floor with an abacus uh, figuring out uh, what the risk is. And um, uh, that's our job on this side is to uh, realize that, yes, there are risks, but the, the biggest risk we have is to not grow. Uh, and one of the most important tools uh, that government has uh, to support growth and to support particular uh, successful enterprises is in lending, and we have we had a loan portfolio during the years uh, that uh, I was in government, and we actually made money on it. I mean, the government sometimes, and I think there's a popular perception that when somebody borrows whatever number of million from government, that it was like a grant, uh, which of course it's not. Uh, these get paid back with interest. Uh, in fact, ours was our rate was four percent during those years, and by the end of the four years. Our loan portfolio had not grown. Our, uh, uh, the stability uh, of the, the loan portfolio had improved. And, and I would say our loan loss provision, which is always something that governments should be asked about, uh, was in as good a shape uh, as you would find in the national uh, lending institutions. But the, 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 the short answer is you can't grow without capital. Uh, and where government is involved, uh, government does need to lend, but has to be careful not to be picking winners and losers. You have to have good bankers who can calculate the risk, and you want to be diversified. Um, that's the biggest danger for government in lending, and David would know some of these situations in uh, New Brunswick, uh, where government gets overextended to the point where 
um, they're they're kind of going down with uh, with with their borrowers. Yeah, I think that's right. So certainly there are lots of cases in Atlantic Canada where that has been what has happened. But uh, but like on PEI, there's lots of cases where the government has stepped in to play a role as a lender, as you indicated in most cases with interest payments. But it's provided a need. The private sector wasn't there. The private banking system wasn't there. And government stepped in and, and uh, played a very important role. We uh, could probably ask you 100 more questions. This has been a great, great conversation. We're nearing the end of the hour here, Wade. So I wanted to just ask you a little bit of a question around what your expectations are for the island and the rest of Atlantic Canada in the coming months. Do you think we're going to come out of COVID strong here? What are your concerns? What's keeping you up at night? We've had even though it hasn't been as uh, acute in Atlantic Canada. We've had the steep, steepest downturn in modern times. Uh, we've had the biggest uh, shake-up in terms of public health awareness uh, of, that any of us has known in our lifetimes or certainly anyone in this area for a century. Uh, so this, is, uh, this has been uh, an unusual time when you consider that a lot of the references that we've made here have been up to the end of 2019, while things changed pretty quickly by March of 2020. Um, here are my quick thoughts on what will come out of this for, for our region. Uh, first, it's to assess uh, what has changed. Uh, what has changed because of COVID? Uh, I'm back to the, the point I made about you know, uh, assessing our assets, one of which is remote work. Uh, this could be uh, a fabulous opportunity for all parts of Atlantic Canada um, uh, coming out of generations when the only thing to do was to move to Boston or Toronto or out west. And uh, we'd be crazy not to be thinking about that, capitalizing on it, but, but putting in place the infrastructure, one, of, one piece of which is going to need to be housing, another piece of which is going to be broadband. And I'm proud that PEI by 2023 at the latest, it will have province-wide broadband uh, uh, on terms that don't have it on the books uh, of the province uh, and that uh, are going to provide that service. A second thing that uh, we, we're going to, it's going to be very interesting to see out of this, and I don't think we'll have the answer by Christmas, uh, is what has changed about people's travel uh, habits? Uh, the, the industry or the sector that will be the last to come out of uh, the shutdowns and the pandemic will be uh, travel and accommodation and leisure and culture. And um, if, if Atlantic Canada can think about how we can brand our experience with uh, the pandemic uh, and bear in mind that you know, prior to the pandemic, Canadians, believe it or not, Canadians were spending... $50 billion a year on consumption outside of Canada, basically cruises and going south and all of the stuff that we know about. Um, if we can convert that $50 billion to staycations, to knowing Canada better, to in particular coming to Atlantic Canada where it's safer, etc., cetera, uh, it, it can be to our advantage. So we have to think about what has changed in a way that might turn out, even though this has been a, quite a, a steep downturn and a scary time uh, for 
Canadians across the board um, to uh, where, the, where are the new opportunities? Healthcare, there's got to be some new opportunities. But the thing I'm the most mindful of is how you led into your question, David, and that is, what about our expectations? Uh, we have had a tremendous amount of federal uh, transfers to individuals, to businesses, and especially to governments in this region on the order upwards of $6 billion non-recurring. Uh, we better be thinking pretty hard about how we're going to switch back to normal uh, and continue to do well and prosper uh, as Atlantic Canada. Wade, uh, we're almost out of time. Thanks very much for taking this opportunity. Well, look, guys, it's been a pleasure. I've been following your series, and it's, uh, it's an addition, it's a contribution to uh, our ability in Prince Edward Island and in the region to know uh, what it is we need to do and what we need to know and to do the best we can. And let's never forget the scrappiness. Well, I just want to say, Wade, I think this is your first uh, in-depth, at least, interview since you were premier. I know it, uh, you've been cautious about, uh, you know, uh, stepping out and uh, and uh, talking about things. But your your uh, your perspective and your experience has been uh, very important. And we're using uh, PEI as the model for the rest of the region. And uh, people are surprised that PEI is the model. I think maybe it's hard to accept that PEI is the model, but you know, that's why we wanted to lead with PEI before we started talking about the other three provinces. So we really appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thanks, Wade. Pleasure. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think. So please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.